Hey there, pioneers, and welcome to episode number 321. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about sheep, specifically sheep if you are going to be getting them for meat and or as a fiber animal. What you need to know about raising sheep, about picking specific breeds, what type of care they require, and then we get into, well, it's all really fun stuff, but then we'll be specifically talking about shearing them, harvesting their wool, things that you need to know, and how to naturally dye yarn from things in your yard or that you forage, things that you might be growing on your homestead, but using all different types of natural items to create gorgeous dyed yarn. So today's episode is a really fun one, and I am very excited to introduce you to today's guest. But first, welcome. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris, fifth generation homesteader, best-selling author of multiple books, including my newest book, The Family Garden Plan and Planner. I help hundreds of thousands of people every single month to learn how to do living, homegrown, and handmade using simple, modern homesteading for a healthy and self-sufficient life. And I am thrilled to have you join us. Now, as I shared, today we're going to be talking all about sheep, including for fiber, but also for meat. And today's episode is sponsored in part by ButcherBox. Now, ButcherBox does not offer sheep. However, they do have high quality, humanely raised meat that you can trust. They deliver 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken that has the, has the highest standards of rating meaning that the chickens actually have free range access and the largest amount of space. There's different uh, tiers. I just learned about that. And ButcherBox only partners with farms that do the highest tier, meaning they actually truly do have free range and outside access. They have heritage bred pork and wild caught seafood that is delivered directly to your door. One of the interesting things about ButcherBox is they ship when you order and your meat is frozen at peak freshness and it's packed in a 100% recyclable box and shipping is always free. However, I was a little concerned, honestly, about ordering meat through the mail. Now, we raise uh, almost 100% of our own meat. However, there's some seafood that we are not able to get And I wanted to test out the quality of their beef and put it up against ours before I ever recommended it to you guys. And we live so far out that the poor delivery guy did not get here until almost seven o'clock at night, which meant that our meat had been on a truck for hours, if not days at that point. And so it was a little bit leery because it has lobster in it before I opened the box. I'm like, oh, I hope it's still cold and frozen. And I was so pleasantly surprised when I opened the box, everything was still rock solid, frozen inside, and it was very good quality. The lobster we had not had in years, so my husband was super excited about that. He's the seafood fan. But I was pleasantly surprised to see that their grass-fed beef 
was very similar to ours. I will say it wasn't quite as bright in color. It was still bright in color, especially compared to store-bought, but not quite as bright as ours. And I think it was a little bit leaner than what our grass-fed beef is. But my kids could not tell the difference. I didn't even tell them that it wasn't our beef and that's all we have at home. And they thought it was great. We made meatballs out of it and it was one of their absolute favorites. And the good news is that I have a special offer just for Pioneering Today podcast listeners. That's you. ButcherBox is giving new members free ground beef for life. Yes, for life. Sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today and get two pounds of ground beef, 100% grass fed ground beef in every order for the life of your membership. But this membership is, or excuse me, the ground beef for life free bonus is only available through October 15th. So go and sign up as quickly as possible if you want to get that two pounds of ground beef for free in every order for life before it goes away. You can get that by logging onto butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today to claim this deal. Now, back to our episode at hand and today's guest. Today's guest is Janet Garman, who is actually a dear friend of mine. I have stayed at her house. She is a wonderful host. And Janet runs and operates Timber Creek Farm. It's their family farm. In addition to being a rewarding life on the farm, it's also where their business was born. Janet has a flock of woolly sheep that are the backbone of their farm yarn business. Over the last decade, Janet and her sheep have developed a line of natural yarns that they are very proud to offer to fellow crafters. From that beginning, a passion product line was developed that includes natural dyed yarn, supplies, and all-inclusive kits. Sharing the skills of using plant dyes has led Janet to produce an online digital course for beginning natural dyers. She shares a wealth of stories and information through her blog, which is at timbercreekfarmer.com. She's the writer and animal wrangler there. And in addition to writing blog posts, she manages the online shop, finds new products to add to their free range yarn lineup, and writes books and magazine articles. Her background of a degree in large animal farm management and animal science from the University of Maryland has helped Janet focus her energy towards helping others learning to raise livestock, chickens, ducks, rabbits, and small farm management. Now, Janet and I, which you're going to get to hear in just a moment, talk about a lot of things. And so to get links to any of the information that I have mentioned thus far, and you'll be hearing in just a minute, you can go to melissaknorris.com forward slash 321. That's just the numbers 321, because this is episode number 321. So again, at melissaknorris.com forward slash 321. Okay, without any further ado, let's get to this awesome interview. Well, Janet, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Well, thanks for having me in here. This is wonderful. What a treat. Yes, I am so happy to have you on. And for those of you listening in, I've actually had the pleasure of staying at Janet's home before. She is a wonderful host. She's also a great Uber driver. We have went on a back road adventure. We didn't know we were going on before, but had so much fun doing it. So I'm really pleased to get to introduce my listeners to someone who is a personal friend, but also someone I've been dying to pick their brain on more in depth than I've been able to do in the other times we've been together on raising sheep for wool and doing the natural dyeing and all of that. So 
I am just so excited that I get to share you with with my people. So welcome. Thanks a lot. We're going to have a good time talking about the sheep and wool and hopefully answering a lot of questions your listeners have. Yeah. So with the sheep, I have, which poor Janet, I have sent her Marco Polos and different things before as I was going back and forth, deciding, are we going to get sheep now? Or are we going to hold off? And so she has patiently answered these questions before, but I want to have them covered in this episode for those of you who may have similar questions to me being a complete newbie, we'll have this information too. So when you're raising sheep for wool, are there dual purpose breeds that are good fiber animals as well as for meat, or are they generally very specific? You're looking at them just as a meat type animal. And can you milk sheep? Is there a dairy sheep? breed or just a fiber animal where you're looking at them for wool or can you have one that can kind of serve all of those purposes right um okay well first of all i don't believe that there are really a a dual purpose or tri-purpose uh sheep that's going to be excellent in all three of those areas okay of course being mammals you're going to get milk from any mammal that has given birth. So, you know, you can get a limited amount of milk as you're weaning lambs, but I would actually suggest that before anyone go for dairy sheep, that they taste sheep milk and sheep milk cheese because it is different than goat and different than cow. So, you know, I would definitely make sure that it's a product that you really want. I would say the closest thing that you're going to get that you can find easily would be an Icelandic sheep. They're a dual coated breed. So you can make some beautiful yarns and wools and, you know, weave or make fabric somehow with their wool. Um, And they're a good meat breed. As far as milking, I would say they're probably on par with any other sheep their size. I could be wrong. You know, there might be people who are using Icelandics that are just, you know, think that their milk is the best thing ever. Um, But a lot of that is opinion and how, you know, experience. So I haven't actually tried to raise sheep for dairy. There are dairy breeds like the East Frisians um, that you would be more inclined to go towards for milk, but then they're not going to be your uh, wool breed either because they're going to put their their body's metabolism into milk production okay <coughs> Excuse well, me. oh no that's okay and that makes a lot of sense so going into the topic because that's what i really want to talk to you today about a lot is is the fiber and being able to harvest that and then dyeing that because you put out such beautiful dyes i'm always impressed every time i see them But what breeds then and what things should you be considering if you're looking to raise sheep specifically for their wool? Okay, well, that's the thing that you're going to have to decide some sub topics on that, too, before you go and buy some fiber sheep. Wool comes in a lot of different thicknesses, styles isn't the right word, but it is kind of what I'm saying. So you're going to have your shorter wool breeds that have a more um, dense fiber. It's a little shorter, well, lock, I guess they would call it, you know, 
And then you've got your long wools, like a Lincoln, which has a very long staple. So, you know, you can get up to like six to eight inches in a staple length on a Lincoln. Your medium wool breeds like a fin are going to be kind of a five inch staple for the most part. And then you've got your shorter staple um, lengths like um, South Downs, um, which is primarily, I would say people raise South Downs for both meat and wool. But for my purposes, um, using a fiber mill, a short staple wool is often rejected by the mill because it's not long enough to get caught in the runner, the rollers. It's kind of technical and I'm not sure that I'm explaining that well enough for you. But if you're using a fiber mill to make your yarn, Mm -hmm. the staple has to be long enough consistently so that when it goes through the mill process, the um, the rollers can catch it. Okay. so if you have a short staple like a South Down that doesn't have a long staple coat, um, it, it often drops off and breaks and then it doesn't make itself into yarn. If that if that's like the simple way of looking at it. So if you're a spinner and you want to just have a lovely huge basket of wool next to your spinning wheel so that you can just pick it up and spin it yourself, Mm -hmm. then the shorter staples can work fine for that kind of environment or that kind of use. Okay, but if you're trying to get, you know, enough to sell and you can't keep up spinning it yourself and you're going to go use a mill. You might want to look to more of the medium to longer staple breeds. After you've decided on that question, I think the next one is size. Um, As much as I love the Lincolns and their long, luxurious locks, they are big. They are very, very big sheep. So, you know, do you want to be... um, a shepherd of a really large animal? Are you comfortable working with large animals? Um, You know, because no matter what, even if you have a support system, you're going to have to handle that animal a lot yourself, even if you maybe aren't physically strong enough. So, you know, I think that all these things have to be taken into account, which is one of the reasons that we have Finn, because we have, they're a nice size sheep and they're hardy and, they have a lot of great uh, parasite resistance, but they're not as big as some of the other breeds. So it's easier for me to tip a 200 uh, or less pound animal to tend to its needs than, you know, heading up into the 300 range. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, like- they're they're big. So as far as <laughs> raising them and you said the fin is the size of about 200 pounds. How much, I don't know if acreage is going to be applicable like it would be for cattle, but how much space do you need? And sheep are a herd animal, so I'm assuming you really don't want to raise one all by itself, that you should at least have a pair. But can you talk a little bit about like space and care requirements for sheep? Yeah, Yeah. you're going to be really surprised at how fast if you're trying to raise them, like say on an acre lot, they're going to overgraze your yard very, very quickly. It's going to be somewhat dependent on the types of grass you have, your um, climate, you know, like how much rain do you get? How fast does your grass grow if you're more arid? So what I usually suggest people do in that case, Melissa, is check with their local extension office to kind of get a a stocking rate 
for their area. Um, for me, my flock of 15 can graze down an acre in, within two days. And then okay. I, need to move, I need to move them because once they overgraze, that grass is not going to recover very quickly. There's like, you know, all these uh, formulas out there where the growth area is in grass and certain grasses. And if they get down to like the last two inches above the ground, they've kind of nipped off the growing area. Mm-hmm. So you, you need to make sure they're not grazing down to the ground, in other words, um, because then you're going to be really fighting to get your grass to grow. So right now we move ours every um, day or two um, and we and we still don't have enough grass for our flock um, with the three areas we have so they have to spend some time in dry lot while it recovers so um and we just keep adding more you know like it's just a growth in progress for us with the sheep and it's fine it's just that then you're looking at purchasing hay you know so there's no there's nothing bad about keeping your sheep in a dry lot you just have to keep it clean dry and and you're going to have to feed them and the best way to feed them is a good quality hay you don't have to buy alfalfa that's not good for them if you're not breeding um you don't need that you know just a good grass hay okay and then as far as a herd size like i'm assuming a pair is fine but what would you recommend if someone's getting in there like how much wool i guess here here's a better way for me to ask this question if you're looking at them as a fiber animal and you're not looking at them for meat production, because that's our focus really for this, how much wool are you going to get off of, say, a fin, which is a medium-sized breed that you're raising? Um, and how, you know, how much do you, how many sheep should you have based upon what you're anticipating, like certain production need, uh, that type of thing? Yeah. Okay. So if you're going to be um, just starting out, I would recommend three. Mature fin sheep is going to give you between five and eight pounds of raw fleece. Okay. Um, then you're going to, of course, need to clean out the parts that aren't going to be turned into yarn um, and use them for another purpose. Um, from that, say, eight pounds of raw fleece, you're going to probably send uh, five or six to the mill because you only want to send the best. You don't want to, they're going to just reject anything that's not good quality. Um, And then you're probably, uh, it's a rough estimate because it it depends on so much, you know, like what kind of yarn weight do you want? Do you want a two ply, three ply, four ply, you know, those kind of things, but you're going to get back a significant amount of yarn from just three sheep, you know, you definitely, definitely would be able to make, um, you know, three or four garments or blankets um, from it. So, you know, and then of course, if you're doing something like weaving, you're going to want a different kind of yarn for your weaving. And I don't know much about weaving, so I'm not going to try to pretend I do, but your mill would work with you on that. You know, if you tell them what you want to do they will work with you. So um, that's, you know, I suggest starting small for a few reasons. One, for your own sanity so that you can get used to it. If you are working on fencing, starting small, you're going to have less animals escaping if you didn't do it right. Um, You know, it's a lot, (laughs) might be 
might be a less stressful thing to try to round up three sheep and 20. Um, getting used to the care they need, the health um, checks and what you're looking for. Um, kind of managing their parasite control needs, how you want to do that, getting that under control. So if you start with a small flock of three, it's a lot more manageable and you probably won't get as overwhelmed and burn out as you would if you started with a flock of 20 that you inherited from somebody. You might be inheriting problems. You know, you might be inheriting some issues that you aren't equipped to take care of. And then it gets frustrating and then you want to get out because you're just like, wow, this is way over my skill level. But it really isn't if you start small and work up. You can always add more. There, there's no shortage of sheep in the world. You can go back to your breeder friend the next year, or you can have more of your own if you buy a breeding set plus an extra weather. You know, there's just a lot of different ways to grow this kind of flop for fiber. So, so yeah. I have, so, it, I have a question on the sheep. I have two actually from, from what yeah. you said. Are, are sheep like goats in the sense that they are as hard on fences and are as escape artists as well as goats, or are they a little bit easier to keep into a fenced area? I think they're easier. What they will do is similar to a cow grazing. They won't necessarily be trying to escape. They're really just trying to eat. So as they're trying to eat, if your fence isn't sturdy enough for them, they're just going to keep pushing. Okay. You know, so, so they're going to keep pushing that fence. And if in, whether you're using a wooden fence or a stock fence or the electric netting, they're going to just keep pushing against it. And okay. if, it, if it gives, well, the next thing you know, here comes three more behind them and they're all like, oh, good, the grass was greener over here. Let's just <laughs> okay. keep going. So that, you know, that's a factor. The other thing with the, um, you know, starting small is um, you will find out if you want more wool or less wool, you know, after your first year, mm-hmm. you'll find out how you want, if you want to work with a shearer or if you want to learn to shear yourself. You know, it's just so many things that you can take slowly There's just a lot to raising sheep that I think it can be overwhelming to people um, if they don't have a lot of livestock in their background. Yeah, I could see that. And you have mentioned, too, like their health needs Mm -hmm. as well as parasite load. So Mm -hmm. are sheep more susceptible to parasites and parasite type issues than say cattle or goats? I think they're, personally, I think they're pretty likely to get a parasite load. Okay. Um, I think it's the nature of, of them. I mean, a lot of people, if you graze your goats, you're gonna have similar issues, but I think that sheep might be even less resilient unless you start breeding or adopting sheep that are more resistant. But still, even then, something can come along that will just kind of knock you out of the water. I have a small flock. I consider 15 a small flock. It's not a beginner flock of three, but it's a small flock in the realm of shepherding. Um, But the one reason I like that is because I can put my hands on every one of those sheep every day if I think I need to. And it's not going to take over my whole life. And I do 
look at them every day. You know, I, I observe them every day. I look and see if anybody's acting off. And then I will put my hands on them and I will look at their eyelids to see if they're starting to become anemic because anemia can be an early um, or really um, strong sign of parasites. It's not, it's not always, you know, as my vet has reminded me when I've told him like, Hey, I think my sheep is um, might need some, you know, parasite testing. And he, and he's like, why do you say that? And I'm like, well, eyelids are really pale. He's like, that's only going to tell you if they're anemic. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I understand that. But most causes of anemia in healthy sheep are, is going to be parasites. So, um, you know, I like to make that distinction. Uh, The FAMACHA test is what I'm referring to, where you you can learn to check their eyelid color. Um, There's, you know, you have to kind of get a hold of them. It's not something you just do as you're walking by. You have to actually hold their head still and, and look at their eyelids. And that will tell you a lot of information, you know, and you can also then mark down the degree and then you can see if they're recovering because you can be like, oh, that's definitely a couple steps up from where they were two days ago, you know, so your hopefully your protocol is working. Can I just get on my soapbox for just one minute? Oh, you jump on that. (laughs) Okay. Here's my soapbox issue with um, natural parasite control. I think natural is the way to go. I'm all, I'm all for it. However, and here's my, however, soapbox moment. If your sheep is overwhelmed with parasites and you are going to keep hitting them with only natural um, preventatives, you are very likely to lose that sheep. And And I will defend this by saying natural is a great way to prevent, to make that sheep healthier, less likely to become overwhelmed with parasites. But there is no evidence that is overwhelmingly conclusive that using herbs and natural remedies will cure a heavy load of parasites. So I know I'm not popular on that in a lot of circles, but I have seen some huge losses of entire flocks because people just kept thinking, we'll just keep giving them oregano. We'll just keep giving them all these herbs. We'll give them all these natural remedies. And their lo- the parasite load was just too high. It couldn't, it couldn't conquer it. And so I always say, if you have a really heavy parasite load, which you can spend very, very few dollars to find out, just consider using a chemical warmer to get them clean again. And then start your herbal protocol and you probably will build a better sheep and keep it healthy. So that's, there you go. I'm going to step down now. That's it. (laughs) That's totally fine. And you know, I think that that's something that in homesteading and natural management, because I think if you're a homesteader, most of us tend to want to lean that way. But there is still a time within modern homesteading to use some modern things. And of course, you have to be the one as the, obviously, if it's with your own health, but in this regards, we're talking about livestock and, and even with your livestock. But, you know, we had a, a calf that got an infection. The mom rejected it. And so that calf did not get the colostrum and developed an infection. And 
if the vet wouldn't have came out and we used antibiotics on that calf, it would have died. So sometimes you have to decide, you know, how am I willing to only go natural and take the chance of that animal dying and using chemical, be it a wormer or an antibiotic does not mean that it won't die because that would be a false statement too. But in instances that we're referring to, it would save that animal's life versus just going the natural route. So I think that that's something that you do want to do want to consider. So I'm glad that you brought it up. And yes, it's not always the most popular answer that people want to hear. But I think from people who have been raising livestock for a long time and have long-term experience, that's the route that has to happen sometimes. So I'm glad you brought that soapbox up. But I just don't think you can have, I mean, I just don't think you can have hard lines on anything when you're raising livestock you are always going to have something thrown at you and being able to kind of accept that and move on and say well you know what i couldn't be 100 percent all natural because we had this horrible event occur um especially when you're starting out you don't know what's already in your ground you don't know what they're going to pick up because you you know, you haven't you haven't run sheep on that property before. So, you know, if you're just getting started, you're going to have a lot of things come up. You, you kind of have to be a little flexible in how you're going to approach things. Um, so that's just, you know, that's how I look at it. It's working for me. And I and I hope it helps somebody out there. Yeah, I did have one question. I yeah. actually have two. But the first one is when you were talking about cleaning the fleece before sending it to them a mill if you're having a mill do it versus well i'm sure you would clean it yourself even if you were spinning it yourself but Mm -hmm. you said when you're cleaning and taking the less than ideal stuff then Mm -hmm. what are some uses that you could do with that or what are some ways that you use that i'm just curious what you can use with that that's not quite good enough to be spun into your yarn yeah sure um you know some of it's going to be covered in poop and urine and um that's going to be nasty it's usually it's called skirting and it's usually the edges of your fleece so okay. as your professional shear shears your animal it should come off in a pretty big piece right they know how to do it so that it does that but even if you do it yourself and you get it off in, in sections um you're going to pull off the you know the stuff that's down by the lower legs the buttocks area um the belly and the bridge, which is in between the back legs, if they are heavy wool breeds back there. Um, A lot of times the head isn't very good. So you're going to be left with what's considered the blanket kind of area. And that's, that's your good stuff. And then the stuff that you pulled off is great for, um, uh, what do you call it? Mulching your garden and, This is a great use for gardening. You'll love this, Melissa, Um, because wool retains moisture, but it also breathes. So once the wool gets wet, it kind of acts like a drip line. So it kind of keeps the soil from drying out while also kind of irrigating your crops. So it's really interesting how that works. I have a ton of bags of not suitable for yarn fleece (laughs) i'm going to you know experiment with but um that's just what i've gained from the research and i've tried it on some you know like tomatoes in pots because they seem to dry out so fast Mm -hmm. um raised bed gardens Um, but i would love to try it like on row crops 
and see, you know, if I can keep down the watering need a little yeah, bit. That, so, that is a fabulous, I had no, I would have not thought of that. Obviously I don't yeah. have sheep, and but then, okay. Yeah. In that case, you know, it'll break down over time and, and add nutrients back into the soil too. But the other thing is um, you don't have to clean it for that purpose, right? Now, if you want to use it for like insulating, like a natural insulating in between your wall or floor joists or something like that, you're probably going to want to scour it first, which is the, you know, the hot water soaking and then the rinsing and then the hot water soaking and using a good scouring wool soap to clean it. It still isn't going to be like great quality. It might be felted. It might be just uh, short pieces that you, you know, you wouldn't want to spin them, but you can, you can use it for insulation, which is kind of good. Um, on the scale that I have, you know, a lot of people say, well, just, you know, put it out in the woods somewhere for the birds and animals to use it for their nests. Well, that's great, but mine would be a mountain just from 15 <laughs> feet. So I don't do that. Um, I save it in, in storage bags and, um, and I'm going to do something fun with it eventually if I live long enough, but you know. <laughs> well, those are two great, great suggestions. Yeah. I was just really curious as to, yeah, to mm -hmm. what some options would be that you could put it to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then like your shorter pieces that you have that maybe aren't necessarily the trash parts of the fleece, but they're shorter, you know, you can use them for felting and you can make sheets of felt, you know, fabric, um, mm -hmm. you know, everything's going to take effort, but that's, you know, that's the way pioneering is, right? I mean, we put effort into things because they're worthwhile and because we need them. And so it's a, yeah, it's a project but it's something that can be useful. Yeah. Well, and I kind of like getting into that aspect of it because if you're not a homesteader or a pioneer and you're only after it for the, you know, the best absolute parts, which is a way a lot of farms or a lot of businesses look at things, they're only after the top end or the part where you're going to be able to make the most profit, which is going to be the nice stuff, which I understand that as well to a certain degree, but mm -hmm. the pioneer and the homesteader, we're looking and seeing like, how can I use all of these things? And right. so I think that it's great that you've got some of those uses that we can still use that aspect of the, the wool. That's not necessarily the best, but when it comes to the best part, which has mm -hmm. been turned into our beautiful yarn, mm -hmm. you have created, and I love because you do it using natural a lot of it is I was harvested. I've seen where you've har harvested stuff from your area, but you use all natural dyes and you get a beautiful rainbow of different colors. And I think from a creative or artistic standpoint, I really think it's amazing the colors and the way that you play and add and do just these different little uh, yeah. tweaks because you talked yeah. to me about them and I'm like I have no idea what she's talking about but it right. sounds awesome um get a little nerdy on that you know where I'm like oh then you can do this and it's so exciting <laughs> which I love and, and when on my bucket list someday when I get into to having fiber animals or getting some and dying my own you're my person but talk talk to us about that because I think Sure. You know, there's a lot of yarn that you can go and get and buy, but there's very few yarn that is mm -hmm. actually dyed by natural means and is done like you're doing it. So share some of that with us. Oh, I'd love to. It's my passion. 
you know, there's so many plants that we look up at as weeds and I grow them. I cultivate them because they're like great dye sources. Uh, one, for instance, is pokeberry. You know, it has those berries, they stain horribly. So, you know, if your kids bring them in and start playing with them, you've got red stain on everything. Um, but those red berries make a beautiful dye. Um, elderberry also makes a beautiful dye. If you're like just overwhelmed with elderberries, um, you can use that. There's just so many things that people look at in the, in the natural world that they want to get rid of dandelions in their yard and of course we all know how healthy dandelions are if you're listening to this podcast i'm sure you love dandelions as much as i do um but they also are a dye the green weeds like purple dead nettle and um, wild mints can just make the most wonderful natural greens and um you know your blues from indigo sources woad and um just so many of the herbs can also be dye plants. So if your herb garden gets a little crazy, you know, didn't keep it tended well, um, you can use those for natural dye. And I often go out and just chop, <laughs> chop sounds like such a harsh word, but I'll go out and trim back my um, lemon balm because it's, you know, running rampant through the yard. And, and I'll use that for a dye. There's lots of different techniques for different kinds of weeds. If you're a flower gardener, there's so many beautiful flowers you can grow for a dye pot. Black-eyed Susans, Rudbeckia, your echinaceas, um, zinnias make an amazing dye bath. Marigolds, um, oh gosh, just so, so many. Uh, Rose of Sharon um, is another beautiful one. So, you know, you can combine some of your loves with it, you know, like maybe you naturally just love to forage and you can go out and see like, what does your property have an abundance of? That's where I've discovered a lot of mine. A lot of my favorite dyes have come from what is this plant and why do we have so much of it? <laughs> <laughs> and then I will look it up and I'm like, well, it's basically not really adding to the look of our farm by growing everywhere. So, you know, I'll be like, well, it needs to be harvested then. It doesn't need to be eliminated. I just need to use this. And um, so that's where I've gotten a lot of my inspiration for colors from. And of course, we're heading into fall, which is my favorite natural dye season, because not only can you be outside in the beautiful weather, creating pots of color, it's also got acorns and black walnuts and goldenrod and pokeberry and um, so many others that you can harvest in the fall. Just create an amazing rainbow. Okay. Well, you were naming off. I had I have a lot of stuff that you just named off that's actually growing out in the herb garden that I didn't even realize you mm -hmm. could use as a dye. The the mm -hmm. echinacea, the zinnia, like your name. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm like, oh, well, maybe I just need to go get some some wool and and start playing with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, and I like to think that I'm unique in that I will play with things to see what I can do with them. A lot of people are what I refer to, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but they're production dyers. They want to recreate a certain color line, um, which I think is great, you know, because we need all kinds of people out there making natural products so that's wonderful but i love to play with my dyes 
So I'll take them and make different combinations and they may become one dye pot only, you know, like that will never happen again because it was just kind of me playing with different colors. But that's how I get inspired. You know, everybody has their own kind of trigger points that make them really feel alive and and like they're really enjoying what they're doing. For me, it's like, wow, what is this plant? Let me look it up. And then I'll be like, just put it in there as a dye plant and see what kind of Google responses you get and see if anyone else has been thinking like you and then try it. You know, the, you just don't know what you're going to find if you don't try. So when you're doing a dye pot, walk me through just a very basic, basic steps or principles when you are looking at dyeing your yarn. Uh, like, are you using water? Are you using vinegar? Like what are you using besides the plant matter? And Mm -hmm. approximately, and I'm assuming the longer you let it go, the more vibrant the color. I could be wrong with that, but approximately like how long Mm -hmm. is this from making up your pot, putting it in there and then putting the the yarn in there and then pulling it out and letting it dry? Like, is this like a 24 hour, a 48 hour? What does the process kind of look like? Well, there's differences for everything, of course, but I will tell you the basic one is it, and I like to, I like to tell people to, to do it over two days. Don't rush, don't rush your dyes. Rushing them often doesn't give you the best results. So I usually start the, the afternoon before I'm going to dye and I will mordant my yarn, which means that I'm going to soak my yarn in a solution that will allow it to accept the dye color. It's going to kind of open up the fibers in the wool. Okay. Um, and I only work with wool. There are a lot of people who work with cotton and linen and silk and all that kind of stuff for natural dyeing. Happy to, you know, go into that at another time for people. Um, but I'm referring to wool. So that would be um that would be sheep wool, alpaca, llama, rabbit, dog. Some people stave their dog hair. And so, in other words, protein fibers. Anyway, so you're gonna soak these in a solution of I use alum, which is aluminum sulfate and cream of tartar. And that, and these things are all available, you know, on my website, all these formulas are on my website or in my book, natural dyes on wool. So you're going to soak it. You bring the, bring the temperature up to a boil um, and then let it simmer for like half an hour, turn it off, leave your yarn in the pot overnight. It's just going to help it soak in more of that mordant solution. The next day, start your dye pot, get your color kind of going, depending on the substance you're using, you either want to keep it at a low warm all the way up to a low simmer. So somewhere in that range, depending on what substance you're working with, some are very heat sensitive. That's why. And then you're going to transfer your yarn over into your dye pot and let the heat come up to whatever's recommended for that plant and watch the color develop. When it's developed enough that you're happy with it right there, turn off the heat, uh, maybe wait just a few more minutes and then take your yarn out of the dye pot in most cases. I mean, there's exceptions to every rule, right? Um, There are a few that I say, oh, leave that in the dye overnight. It'll do so much better for you. But for the most part, once you reach your color, you can take it out, let it cool down and, I usually let mine dry a little bit. It doesn't have to be completely dry, but I usually let them drip dry before I wash them out in a cool, like cool to warm um, water and um, a little bit of wool shampoo to make them smell good. And um, that's it. 
Okay. Well, I know that was very simplified, but I'm glad you very did it because I know there's there's lots of nuances within there, but uh, we don't have time to go into that full aspect right. and all of that right. in today's episode. But um, you have some amazing resources for people who are wanting to learn, obviously, more about sheep, but especially the dyeing aspect, using the natural dyes in that. And so first off, are you going to be presenting at any conferences where people could go and and see you and learn about this in person and then also where they can find more about you and follow your process online too. Happy to share that. So um, in the, in the near future, I have two events scheduled. One will be a small group at Polyface farm in Virginia, where I'll be doing a natural dye workshop um, September. I remember exactly which weekend it was. 25th, September 25th. And that should be being promoted by them soon. Okay. Um, And then uh, of course our, our favorite venue is the Homesteaders of America um, conference in October 8th and 9th this year. I'll be presenting with both um, myself, the lady who shears for me and a local uh, spinning and fiber arts teacher. So we're going to produce a um, kind of sheep to skein um, resource for the people who attend our, our um, talk. Hopefully, hopefully there'll be a live demo of sharing and, um, and we'll be just, you know, answering all the questions people have for the whole gamut from, you know, raising your sheep, questions about that all the way to through to the spinning process and uh, natural dyeing of your yarn. Oh, that's going to be exciting. I hope that we're not presenting at the same time so that I can come and watch. <laughs> and of course, you know, like you, I'll be there the whole whole entire weekend. I have a booth. And so you can always find me and I'll be happy to talk sheep and wool and dying anytime, all day long. <laughs> Yay. And then on online, where is the best place for people to connect with you, Janet? Okay, so of course my website, which is uh, timbercreekfarmer.com and then on Instagram at timbercreekfarmer and um, my books are available on my Etsy shop under Timber Creek Farm. They're also available on my website. One, one book, um, Keeping Sheep and Other Fiber Animals came out in 2019 and that's a kind of the same thing of, you know, all the way from choosing your sheep, how big of a property do you need, what kind of fencing, housing, feed, all that kind of stuff, all the way through. I did give some natural dye info in there. There's also other, you know, ways to use your fiber from any of your protein fiber animals. Uh, And then last year, I wrote quite a few of my recipes, um, put them in a book with a guide to how to do natural dyes on wool. It's a journaling notebook, so you can take notes in it. There's plenty of space for you to write down your own results. And I'm really proud of it because it was a huge, um, a huge project to take on. Uh, you know, recipes all need to be tested and that kind of stuff before you go ahead and put them out there. So my team worked really hard with me on that. And I'm really proud of it. Yes, you should be. And you ha- also at times have different kits as like actual things that you can purchase Physical. That's the word I was looking for. Physical kits and stuff. So yeah, highly, if you're interested in that, highly recommend checking out those resources. And we'll have links to all of that. I know sometimes when you're listening, you're like, oh man. So we'll have links to all of that in the blog post that accompanies this episode. So you'll be able to find them there too. 
So Janet, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. I learned a lot and I am excited to be able to see your presentation at HOA. I'm really excited to be able to watch some of that in person. So I'm so excited that you're doing doing that that full-on gamut workshop there. That's going to be awesome. Well, thank you, Melissa. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to see you again. Yes, Yes, um, same here. We'll all be there, you know, so I just want to, you know, give a quick plug to to that um, organization that Melissa and I are involved in. And, you know, it's just so well done and and, um, so much information to be gathered. So I really recommend people come out and see us. Yes, yeah, same here. Very excited to be a part of that and to get to see people in person this fall. So Janet, thank you so much. And I know you and I will be talking soon. And I know that others who listened in will find you as great a resource as I do. No, I'm happy to help. That's what I'm here for. I really do believe that. I really believe in helping people figure out how to do some of these uh, skills themselves. Thank you. Okay, talk to you soon. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Janet is such a sweet spirited lady and has such a heart for sharing and giving to others. And if you have not gotten your ticket yet and are going to be in or can get to Virginia, Janet and I both would love to see you at this year's 2021 October Homesteaders of America's Conference. We actually have our booths side by side because my daughter helps to run my booth while I'm presenting and teaching workshops. And then she jumps over to Janet's booth when she is teaching and helps to run hers. So we would love to be able to see you there. You can grab tickets. You can't get tickets at the gate, but you can purchase them online. At the time of this recording, there were still tickets available. Find out more information at melissacunoris.com forward slash H-O-A. Thank you so much for joining us. I will be back here with you next week with another, well, I like to think they're incredible episodes, (laughs) but with another incredible episode where we are going to be talking about herbal medicine and a spotlight on a longstanding, what used to be a very traditional garden flower that was used herbally in almost every housewife's arsenal, shall we say, but it is one that most people, or I should say a lot of folks, don't actually know how to use anymore or know the amazing benefits that it has. We're going to be talking all about that in next week. So for now, blessings in mason jars, my friend. Mm -hmm.